I'm going to blow your mind today. I'm gonna blow, I'm gonna blow your mind today. And I'm gonna do it with one simple word. Are you ready? Grace. That's it. That's the whole sermon, grace. That's the whole message, grace. Out of all of the theological, marital conversations that we have, out of all the depths of wisdom housed in all of the texts, in all of the libraries, in all of the world, out of all of the ideological persuasions that men have ever or will ever examine, the concept of grace is the most incredible, awe-inspiring, the deepest, the richest, the most profound truth. And yet, some of you are looking back at me with, dare I say, disappointment? Hmm. And I would wager that those of you that are experiencing the most disappointment are also those of you who have been walking with Jesus the longest. Too often we forget. Particularly the seasoned believer, we, we forget. We forget the most profound truth, kind of in our quest for didactic arguments and reasoning and our search for for something that'll stimulate the mind and titillate our emotions and, and, and stimulate our thought process, we forget to be wowed and won and re-won by the pure gospel of grace, by the pure gospel of Jesus. We forget that it's good news. I mean, real good news. And many of us have reduced the gospel to simply being a tool for evangelism, as simply being useful to people who don't know Jesus, and we forget that believers need the gospel too. We forget it so much, some of you have already started to tune me out, that's all right. <laughs> we forget that the gospel is not just about saving us, but it is the central element to our sanctification and spiritual formation practice, and I too am guilty. See, I'm, I'm a preacher's preacher, and I have been guilty of going to other churches or conferences and, and watching the preacher on stage, and as soon as I think I know where he or she is going with his message, I tune out. I stop listening. His or her message starts to lose its value, and for too many of us, the gospel has lost its value. Maybe if we lived in a country where like the mere presence of a Bible could get you executed? Or if we lived in a country where if you just had two or three believers in the same room, you could go to prison, maybe we would approach the gospel differently. But, but for many of us in this country, the gospel has lost its value. And so we search for new podcasts and new commentaries and new preachers and sometimes new churches as if the Bible doesn't say there are new mercies every day. As if it doesn't talk about how Jesus' blood contours itself to your new issues, your new problems, your new circumstances, your new sins. And while it is... It's good to always be searching for more, 
to always be trying to go deeper. It is not good to do so out of a depreciating value for what you've already been given, we forget. And I intend today to remind us, to help us discover and rediscover the power the supernatural miracle work and heart change and educational transformational power of the pure gospel. A few weeks ago, we had our worship prayer and healing night. How many of you went to that? Yeah, it was a powerful time. I had one job at that event. They told me, they said, Judah, when Pastor Lance gets on the stage and he starts praying, your job is to go to the soaking room and, and do the first prayer in the soaking room. If you were here, you know that we had this, the sanctuary full of prayer. And then we also had another room that was a little quieter, a little less sensory overload. And I was supposed to go there and do the first prayer in that room. And so I followed instructions. When Pastor Lance got up here, I started going to the soaking room. I messed up though because I happened to walk past my favorite person at Bridgeway. My favorite person at Bridgeway is a one-year-old little boy. His name is Maverick. Maverick is Pastor Dylan, our worship pastor, and his wife Kaylee's son. I love that little boy. That is my fact. I, I, I will end conversations with some of y'all in the lobby if I see uh, Maverick uh, out the corner of my eye. I'll wrap it up real quick in Jesus' name, amen, and I'll go and grab Maverick. I have been known to sneak out of main service to go serve in the nursery just because I wanted to spend time with Maverick. And as I was walking to the soaking room, I happened to see Kaylee and Maverick. And so as is our custom every weekend, I just grabbed them out of her arms and I went on my way. But when I got to the soaking room, I remembered what I was there to do, and I got nervous. I said, oh, goodness, in a few minutes, I'm supposed to be on camera, and I have Maverick, and his mom is too far for me to take him back. And then I said, you know what? It's fine. It's, it's, he's fine. It's a baby. I'll just take him. I'll hold him. I'll have him on camera. It's fine. So they said, go stand on the X, and when we point to you, that's when you're supposed to start praying. So I went and stood on the X, and Pastor Lance was praying. If you know Pastor Lance, you know our, our good bishop is a long-winded prayer. He's not here, so I could talk about him. So I'm holding Maverick, and the cameraman says, when I point to you, it's your time. And so we're waiting. He said, Lance is wrapping up. Lance is wrapping up. No, 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 no. He's still going. He's still going. Uh, no, no, no. He's still going. He's still going. And one minute turns into five minutes, and Maverick starts getting cranky, right? Because we're just standing there. We don't have any toys. We don't have any snacks. We're not playing peekaboo. We're not doing any of the things that we're supposed to be doing. And he starts getting agitated. And I get nervous because it's one thing to hold the baby on camera that's demure and calm. It is another thing to try to pray while holding a screaming infant. So I did something that I learned a long time ago. I don't remember where I learned this or who taught it to me, but I learned that there's this thing you can do when a baby starts to get nervous and restless and, and cranky. And for most babies, this thing will, will stop them from crying immediately. And so I did, I pulled Maverick to the front of me where he could see my face. And all I did was I raised my eyebrows like this. I just raised them up and down. And it, it does something to babies. Maverick just started looking at me and then he tilted his head. And for a few moments, he was captivated. He was enthralled by the lifting of my eyebrows and that held him off long enough for us to get through the praying on camera. It is an imperfect analogy, but I just think that the gospel of Jesus, that the gospel of grace should captivate us like that. 
that it should stop us mid-fuss, mid-cry, mid-tantrum, and captivate our attention. When we think about the very real ways that our enemy attacks us, we often think about how he attacks our mental health, right? Our minds, our emotions, how he attacks our churches with division, political, ethnic, sociological. We think about how he attacks us with, with greed and with lust and with pride. And all of those are very real ways that the adversary attacks us. But I don't think we talk often enough about how the enemy attacks folks that would describe themselves as good, church-going, tithing, kind, serving people with the weapon of apathy. With the weapon of apathy. I see it often in worship when the host and the worship team have to drag a praise and worship out of us. I won't talk about y'all, I'll talk about myself. Too often... It is not until the worship team sings my song. You know that song that does it for you. For me, it's the blessing. When they get to for your children and their children try, ah, God. But too often, it's not till they get there that I go for it. Too often, I find that I am not wowed enough by the gospel. I'm wowed by a chord progression that is designed to elicit an emotional response. And that's when I find tears in my eyes and my arms outstretched. But I'm trying to get to a place, y'all, where all I have to do is think about Jesus and I lose my mind. I'm trying to get to a place where all I have to do is consider the reality that I am saved by grace alone and it takes my breath away. I'm trying to get to a place where all Jesus has to do is, is raise his eyebrows. And whatever I was thinking about, whatever was on my mind, whatever was bothering me, whatever it was, moves to the peripheral of my mind. And once again, I am captivated by the simple, not so simple reality. Are you captivated? I'm not going to insult your intelligence. I know many of you believe. I know you believe. But are you captivated? Are you blown away? Are you enthralled? Are you enthralled by the reality that Jesus, that God himself, that God the Son came to this earth, fully God and fully man, and he died for every time you were going to make a mistake? For every time you were going to drop the ball, for every time you were going to be prideful, for every time you were going to think an evil or lustful or hateful thought, for every time that you were going to fail somebody, for every time that you were going to hurt somebody, and for every time that somebody hurt you, he died. And he was buried and resurrected. And he showed himself to witnesses as confirmation. That's the good news. It's that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he would do. And our entire eternal reality hinges upon that. Nothing else makes sense if that's not true. Nothing else works if that's not true. Nothing else matters if that's not true. And listen, there are a whole lot of really fun things we can debate in between. 
We can argue about whether you think God created the world in seven literal days or whether you think that's analogy. We can argue about the appropriate place and time for speaking in tongues. We can argue about whether or not you want to read NIV or ESV, and we can have a good time doing it, but come back to the pure gospel. And a lot of us have lost our enthusiasm and passion for the gospel because we've gotten tangled in the weeds. Here's your fill in the blank if you're watching with us online or if you're just taking notes. Root in the gospel. Root in the gospel. Stake your tent there. Drop your anchor there. Place your flag there. Fly your banner there. You know, if believers anchored in the gospel more, there would be a whole lot less conflict between churches. Too often we throw away churches and Christians over secondary issues. In the grand scheme of things, I really don't care which version of the Bible you subscribe to. You know that you're saved by grace alone? Good. We'll work out the rest along the way. Y'all don't believe that women can be leaders in the church? Fine. At my church, they do. You want me to bring chocolate and vanilla to dinner tonight? You know? I I don't care. It's a secondary, it's a secondary issue. Root in the gospel and let it woo you again and again and again and again. We're going to look at a portion of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth. And in this letter, we see him addressing the reality that all believers are susceptible to devaluing and forgetting the pure gospel. Paul has spent previous sections of this letter addressing real issues that had arisen in the Corinthian community. Issues that needed to be addressed. He talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about prophecy. He talks about tongues. He talks about the principles of marriage. He talks about what he thinks believers should wear. He he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about lawsuits. He talks about all kinds of real issues that communities have because he is talking to a people full of divisions. I imagine he would have felt right at home in these here United States where I could start World War III right now just by asking, what y'all think about vaccines? (laughs) Paul uses this letter to address these issues and, and more, but by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is reminding them of what's of first importance. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. In the blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, it will be page 961, I believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says this, now I would remind you, brothers, I want to stop right there just for a second, because I want you to notice how he addresses them. Brothers. It's just a reminder to us that even when you're bringing challenge, when you're bringing correction, you are still talking to family. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being, that's active and currently happening, being saved. Watch this. If, if, you hold fast to the word 
I preach to you. Now listen, I'm not interested in debating whether or not you can become unsaved. That's a different sermon for another day. But what I do want to highlight is that there is a necessity that believers come back to the core truth of the gospel. Paul says, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, I've met Jesus myself. And Paul says, it's a big deal. Verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach and so you believe. And Paul says it's good news. These Corinthian Christians had received the gospel. They had stood in it. Despite all of their other issues with carnality, with lack of understanding, with division, they stood on the gospel. And this is in comparison to the church in Galatia, which was always being moved away to other gospels. The Corinthians had done well because they had received the gospel and they were doing well because they stood on the gospel. But Paul is reminding them that they have to continue to do well and that you have to be intentional with it. He says, hold fast to the gospel I preach to you. It is this reality that like every every believer has to take seriously their responsibility to have a good future with the Lord. Paul says, hold fast. It's the Greek word kateko. It means to, to lay your hands on something and hold on for dear life. Like whatever comes, whatever goes, Whoever wins the election, however many variants come, Paul says, hold on to this gospel like your life depends on it. I love the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I love it because it is an anchor point for my life. I love it because no matter how the winds blow around me, this is the point of my grip. This 15th chapter is the strength which picks me up and stands me on my two feet. And our whole life is predicated on this truth. Paul says that your past, your present, and your future are determined by the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what I want you to know. Paul is not giving them something new. He's giving them something inherited. He's giving them what was preached by other apostles and what was preached to him, this great foundation on which we stand, this this reality of Christ dying and being resurrected. It impacts our whole world. And then he, he talks about 
all of these resurrection appearances that Jesus made. Now, when we get to this part where Paul talks about these resurrection appearances, it shows Paul's skill set with communicating because he's not just speaking to their emotions, he's using logic and reason. He talks about these resurrection appearances that Jesus made, and he's really tapping into something that's true about all of humanity. We usually believe things because two things have happened. Because we have experienced something to be true, and also because somebody else agrees with us. Think about everything you believe in, right? A part of why you believe in it is because there's somebody in your life who also believes in it, right? Like, like think about as soon as an idea starts to form in your mind or you start to get an opinion, what do you do? You go on the Googler and you start reading every Facebook and Reddit article, usually written by people who already agree with you to confirm what you think, right? Because there's something about when many people believe a thing that makes it worth considering. Now, don't get me wrong, people can be wrong in groups. They have before. There was a group called the Nazis. They were wrong. There, in Europe, when coffee first made its way into Europe, the Europeans thought that coffee was a dangerous substance that ought not be consumed. Now, those of us who are saved know that coffee is God's blessed drink, amen? So people can be wrong in groups, for sure. But there is something about when somebody says, me too, I saw it too, I heard it too, I experienced it too, I agree with you, that gives the thing credibility. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that one of the central pieces of evidence for our Christian faith, he tells them, he says, Peter saw him. He says the apostles saw him. 500 people in one space saw him. You try to get 500 people to agree on anything. I could tell you right now the sky is blue and somebody would stand up and say, mm, it's turquoise. You understand what I'm saying? He says, he says the apostles saw him. James saw him. And then at some point, this gospel made its way down to Greece and the Greeks believed. And then it made its way down to Turkey and the Turkish believed. And then it found itself in Ethiopia and in Egypt and the Ethiopians and the Egyptians believed. In fact, today, some of the oldest Christian churches that still exist are in Ethiopia and in Egypt. And then somehow it found its way into India and the Indians believed. And through generation after generation, year after year, somehow it found its way into your heart. One of the pieces of evidence for the faith is, is just simply how fast and how wide it spread. The diversity of Christianity speaks to its solidness. Don't believe me? Answer me this. How many white Muslims do you know? Take your time, I'll wait. How many black Buddhists do you know? One, two. How many Latino Taoists do you know? Check your Facebook, I'll wait. <laughs> These other faiths are often largely restricted to one, two, or three people groups. 
But somehow Christianity managed to step over every geographical, cultural, and linguistic line. So where today there are people in Ethiopia praying to the same God that there are folks in Thailand praying to. And these people don't share language. They don't share historical perspective. They don't share worldview. They don't share tradition. And yet somehow they all have met Jesus. One of my good friends... His name is Justin Colosi. He, he always takes me to lunch, and I go every time because he pays, glory to God. <laughs> and every time we go to lunch, me, me and Justin, we throw down over political arguments. I mean, we get to that table and we get to wrestling because Justin and I are about as, as far apart ideologically as you can imagine. And it evangelizes me every time that I spend time with him because I think to myself, man, somehow this man that we don't hardly agree on anything, we both agree that Jesus is Lord. It's evidence. Paul says that this is not merely an idea that we cling to, but a reality because we can't all be crazy. Some of y'all, but we can't all be crazy. I know. So here's what I need you to know. A part of how you hold fast to the gospel, you need to be grounded in community, in a community of believers. There is power in being grounded in a community of believers. Some of you have been coming to church a long time. I'm not talking about coming to church. That's where it begins. I'm talking about being grounded in community. And some of us have let the devil shame us into isolation because of your problems, because of your issues, because of what you've done and who you've done it with, you feel like you can't be in community. Today is your day to be free. Some of us have allowed our own uniqueness to keep us out of community. We say, well, I'm different than the people at that church, so I can't be there. No, no, no. Your difference is why you need to be here. Some of us have allowed our circumstance to keep us out of community. I'm busy. I got to take her to dance class, him to soccer practice. Listen, today is your day to be free of that. Some of us have allowed just the reality that community is challenging. The challenge of being in community to keep us out of community. But, but here's what I want you to know. Community has always been challenging. It's why you get anxiety every time you get ready to go to family dinner. Because community is hard no matter where you go, what church, what family, where you work, who you work with. Community is challenging. Today is your day to break free of that. And fortunately, you happen to be at a church that has so many opportunities for community. We got small groups, missional communities. We got classes that we roll out every semester. We have event after event after event, all kinds of events. We have events for those of you that are super heady and like to study and read like our coffee and theologies. We have events that are just for having fun like our game nights. Our young adult ministry here has more events than any other young adult ministry in this region. It is not because we just like doing events. It is because we understand that holding fast to the gospel requires community. Paul tells his readers, he says, somehow 
I am an apostle, even though I should have been left for dead because of my sinfulness. He says, God gave me life and made me an apostle of which I am unworthy to be called. Paul says he is unworthy to be called an apostle. We're talking about Paul here. Paul could have said, I am the greatest of the apostles. He certainly was the most educated. He was the most well-connected, the most well-known. Uh, well he was the most powerful. Paul not only had religious power, he had political power. Paul could have you assassinated. Paul wrote more scripture than anybody else. He planted more churches than anybody else. And yet Paul says that he is unworthy. If Paul is unworthy and can be used in this mighty way, why are we letting our own unworthiness shame us? Our unworthiness shouldn't shame us. It should compel us. So the second thing that is required for holding fast to the gospel is humility. Humility is simply seeing things the way they are. Seeing the reality that as much as you like to think of yourself as a good person, you're not. It's seeing the reality that you are broken and you are flawed, that you struggle. It is seeing the reality that for all the effort in the world, you will still fall short. And the beauty in being able to see that about yourself is that it will allow you to see your need for the gospel. See, we value what we need. I don't care how many times I eat, every time I get hungry, guess what? Food is beautiful again. And humility is the way that we can see how much we need the gospel. That This is the issue with pride is pride restricts the ability to see your need. It's why some of you really think you're better than other folks. Who is it that you think you're better than? Who is it that you think you have more value than? The sad part about it is the person you hurt the most with those kinds of ideas is you because you are restricting yourself from the ability to see how much you need the gospel. It demands humility. Romans 3 and 9 says, for we have already charged that all, somebody say all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. That means if we brought all our resources, all of our intellect, all of our giftings and skills, all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Humility. And if you've lost your passion and your excitement for the gospel, the first thing I would invite you to do is ask the Lord to help you really see yourself and see your need for it. Because once you get how much you need it, you get excited about it every time. It becomes the most incredible thing. And here's what I would tell you, the consequence of a gospel that is held fast to is transformation. The gospel changes who we are and what we do. Paul went from being persecutor, the one who chases people, to apostle, the one who is sent for people. And for us, God takes us who are ungodly and filthy and he makes us righteous. 
his grace becomes a catalyst for change, and it must. His grace must move us to change. Listen, the death and resurrection of Jesus should change everything about our lives, and if it doesn't, then maybe we have heard the gospel in vain. So part of holding fast to the gospel is this. When the gospel endeavors to change you, let it. Let it change you. We can become numb to the gospel when we try to hold on to who we think we are. When we've decided, well, Lord, I've changed enough, thanks. All done now. Like, what if you just, what if you said, Lord, you can change anything you want about me. Anything you want, you can change it. I do, Judah. Do you? Do you let him change anything he wants? What if, what if he wants to change your economic status? What if he wants to change where you live, how you live, who you live with? What if he wants to change where you work, how you work? I remember when I was first stepping into ministry, I did an internship on a Navajo reservation, and the pastor there, he, he was the handyman. He was the town handyman. He had started, he would just go around to the trailers and he would fix stuff. He would fix stuff for folks, and, and, and he started ministering to them. Eventually, he built a little bitty church with his own two hands, and every morning he would get up, and his, his uniform was muddy overalls, and he would have his tool belt, and he would start making his rounds around the town as somebody who is not handy in the slightest. I can't fix nothing. Pray for me. It was the most unglamorous ministry ever. This is so nice. This is beautiful compared to that. And I remember the Lord asking me, if this is what ministry looks like, will you do it? My answer was yes, but I said, Lord, it's not my preference though. (laughs) Can God change anything? Can he change your opinions? Can he change your ideals? Can he change your politics? But my politics are godly. Are they? Have you asked him? Maybe he has a different idea. Maybe God's ideas are actually a real threat to your ideas. Maybe what God is doing with you is so specific that it doesn't make sense in the sphere of the world you live in. I I dealt with this a lot. I had my brother living with me for a while. My brother is 20, and I love him a lot. And my my brother was dealing with just being young and selfish and he was using up everything in my house. I mean, all my bills doubled. I mean, I, why, 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 is, why is the air on 60? What is going on? Who pays this light bill, sir? It worked my last nerve. I remember one day I came home, I had bought one of the five gallon things of um, laundry detergent. And two days later I came and it was gone. I was furious. I went in there, I was ready to flip tables. And I remember the Lord said to me, but can you outgive me? And I knew that the Lord in that season was dealing with me on what it is to die to yourself. And because of what the Lord was doing in me, I could not bring challenge to my brother. Now, in any other situation, I would tell somebody, hey, if somebody's taking advantage of you, you need to probably say something about that and say, hey, this isn't okay. But because of what the Lord was doing in me, I could not say anything at that time. What if what the Lord is doing in you is so specific it doesn't make sense? Will you let him change anything about you? Holding fast really does mean dying to yourself and like dying doesn't feel good. It's not comfortable, it's not convenient. It's awful sometimes. 
And so Paul continues to teach. He says, I worked real hard, but he emphasizes, he says, but it wasn't me. It was the grace in me that was working in my life. Listen, grace leads to hard work. We have it backwards sometimes. We think we have to work hard for grace. That's not how it works. Grace leads us to work hard because grace does not lead to laziness. We are not standing on the resurrection and holding fast to the gospel if we are not being propelled to a greater effort in Christ. And it is easy to focus on acts and outcomes and forget why we are doing what we're doing. Listen, if we are not teaching the gospel in this church, what are we doing? If we, if we are not doing things in this church from the gospel, what are we doing? You know, you can go anywhere in the world and hear a pretty song, hear somebody play the keys real, real pretty, sing real nice. You can click virtually any TEDx talk on YouTube and hear a great speech, powerful orators. Why do we assemble? The good news of Jesus is why. Why do we serve? Why are there people on cameras and people who serve you in the cafe, people who, who work in, in kids' way? The good news of the gospel is why. Why do we submit one to another? The good news of Jesus is why everything we say, everything we do, should be because of the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is where we stand. The gospel is what we hold fast to. So the last thing that I want you to walk out of here knowing is that in order to hold fast to it, you're gonna have to rehearse it. You're gonna need to hear it constantly. You need to read it. You need to speak it. You need to listen to it. You need to continually ingest it, even when you know it like the back of your hand. Read it again. Read the reality that God saves us. And you should be excited about it. You ought to be excited that God gave his only begotten son. And maybe, maybe you think you're worthy of that kind of love. I do not. I know for myself, I am not. Because I am the man that has told lies, that has stolen, that has dabbled in a few different substances. I am the man who has slept with just about everything that walks on two legs. I am the man who has paid prostitutes. I am the man who has attempted murder. I am the man who has attempted suicide. I am that man. So if you can't get excited about your own salvation, you can get excited about mine. For God so loved me. You ought to be excited about it. That's the pure gospel. God so loved me. I, I don't care how you feel about unconditional election, limited atonement. God so loved me. I, I don't care what you wear. You can wear a suit. You can wear ripped jeans. You can vote for who you want to vote for. You can be a capitalist or a socialist or an Aquarius. God so loved. God so loved me. And it trumps everything. It is the most important thing. It is the truest thing. And it changed everything for me. Come back to that. 
If you have never met Jesus before, I would love to introduce you. The first thing I want you to know about him is that he loves you. And I would invite you to sit in that for a minute, to sit in the reality that somebody could love you like that. If you're already a believer, I wanna invite you to come back to that. Come back to God so loved me. Everything else is details. So emerge from the weeds. Detangle yourself. Lean into the evidence, because there is evidence. And stir up your own excitement. Hype yourself up about it. But come back to the pure gospel. The Bible says that we ought to have childlike faith. Some of y'all got that confused and thought it said childish faith. It said childlike faith. And sometimes we need to approach faith like, like a little boy enthralled by the raising of eyebrows. Sometimes it helps to sing a little childish song. Yes, Jesus, don't y'all let me sing by myself, loves me. Come on, y'all. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And may it captivate your attention, enthrall your senses, stimulate your heart. May it motivate every action that you take. May it encourage you and empower you. May it build you up and convict you. May it transform you. In Jesus' name, amen.